Hey, good morning. Good morning, Pursuit. My name is Corey Jones. I am one of the pastors at Catalyst Covenant, your daughter, best friend church in White Bear Lake. We are so grateful. My wife and I, Cindy, who will be here next week, actually, um, planted this church together, and we are so grateful for you and for this church and your leadership of this church and Mark um, for what you have given to us, what you've generously given, you've, you've sacrificially given, and some of that money and that res- those resources have come to us, and we are loving it, and we are so grateful for you, and our church is awesome. We love our church. Catalyst Covenant White Bear Lake is an amazing place we are building. Uh, God is doing some great things. Um, we are building community partners, and, and, and what has really been kind of fun, too, is Mark had said, we're getting some coaching from pursuit from Mark and um, their that team, your team, uh, and we're being able to replicate some really awesome stuff that you guys are doing, and so that's been really fun for us. So thank you. Uh, if you don't hear anything else I say today, just hear that that I am grateful for you. That and sermon over. Go home. Enjoy. Uh, no. So, but thank you, thank you. Um, let me let me pray before we get started, uh, and I just want to lift up the Allen family, and, and Mark for sure. So let me pray. God, we are so grateful for you, that you are a God who loves us, that you are a God, the God of the universe cares about us, compassionately cares about every, every intricate detail of our lives. Lord, we lift up this morning, we lift up your word We lift up our hearts to what you want to say to us. Meet us here in this place. Lord, we we also lift up the Allen family and specifically Mark as as he continues on this this medical journey. Lord, we, we, we don't want to negate the possibility of some sort of miraculous healing. We know that you are good and we know that you are capable of that. But we also know that you have turned miracles into medical staff that you are with doctors and surgeons and nurses and technology, that those are miracles in and of themselves. And we know that you are in that. So Lord, as he prepares for surgery, as he prepares uh, for all the things he needs to do to recover, um, be with them, just overwhelm him with comfort and peace and joy, and that this is Uh, safe within your secure hands. So Lord, we love you. Meet us here today again. Open our hearts and our ears to hear what you have to say. Amen. So the Oscars were last week. Did anybody watch the Oscars? Anybody? No movie fans in here. Great. Good start. All right. Not one movie. I am a fan of movies, so I watch the Oscars. I love the Oscars. And, and if you didn't watch them, they were not, <laughs> you're going to hear about it, they were not nearly as dramatic as last year's Oscars, which I'm sure you heard. There were, there were no assaults, public assaults on stage this year. And, and I, as your guest pastor, let me, let me say this, I don't condone any public assaults, so, but it, was, it did make for a less interesting Oscars. Um, I don't want anyone to get slapped on live television, but, but I, uh, anyway, I love, I love movies and I love the buzz of the Oscars. And I, and so this year I, I, every year I try and watch 
some of the movies that are that are getting a lot of the Oscar buzz. And this year I was able to catch a few of them. And and what I really like about movies and show television shows are that th- this one thing that they all have in common. Well, not all of them, but at least the good ones have this thing in common, and that's tension. They all have a tension woven into them, right? There's some sort of tension. Think about, take a minute and think about your favorite television show or your favorite movies, right? And think about what keeps you interested, what draws you in, and there's that tension, right? I, what's going to happen next? Or how is this relationship going to play out? What's going on with this, the good guys, the bad guys, the, the people that are that maybe like each other, maybe don't like each other, and, and will they ever like each other together, that kind of thing. It keeps us invested because it's woven in to every episode or woven in to every movie. There's good tension and fun tension like on The Office between Jim and Pam, right? That's fun and good tension. Or Jim and Dwight, how is that relationship going to play out? What, what, is, what will Jim put in Jello next? Or things like that. And then... Or there's this fearful or intense tension that is what, and, and I'm, you can decide if you like this movie or not, but it weaves its way through the whole um, movie All Quiet on the Western Front. This World War I fearful, intense war tension that weaves its way. At, or maybe there's this more relatable tension in, this, in, in one of my favorite movies this year, The Banshees of Inishirin, where it's it's really this simple but yet complex thing where uh, two lifelong friends, where one friend decides, I don't want to be your friend anymore. They were, they've been friends forever, and one says, I don't want to be your friend anymore, and the tension of how do they move forward with that. Right? And I'm not here to be Siskel and Ebert or a movie critic, and if you're under 40, you won't know who Siskel and Ebert are. So, but they were, I don't even know if they're still with us. Are they still with us? Maybe one of them is. Anyway, that doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I'm talking about tension for a reason, not just because I like movies, but because it is a major player in the, in the Scripture that we're going to talk about and that we're going to read today. Right? It's always, the, the tension is always hanging around in the background of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Right? It's always there. There's, there's this built-in tension, and it's a good tension. So as I read the passage this morning, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 30, know that tension is the context, that it, tension is the lens that I'm, that I'm looking at this passage through and that we're going to be talking about it. So if you have an old-school physical Bible, uh, awesome. You can turn to Matthew 5 if not. Or if you have a new school Bible on your phone, um, please do that too. Otherwise, it'll be on the screens as I read. So here it is. Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 30. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. This is Jesus speaking. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by, en- will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard, it was, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift to the altar and and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Um, hang on. I have this, I have this really sweet German cuckoo clock at my house, and it has all of these, these parts and components and, and intricate details to it, right? It's got the hands, they're shaped weird and funny and cool, it's got the face of the clock, it's got uh, wooden carved birds on the top of it and then chains that come down in like wooden pine cones on the chain. And it's got, it's got the little German lady on the balcony. She doesn't actually move, but she's like this kind of thing. Um, and, and you get it. Like, it. You've all seen a German cuckoo clock, maybe. If you haven't, Google it. They're awesome. But my cuckoo clock doesn't work. It doesn't work at all, and, and nothing, none of the components move. It's supposed to do, the, the bird doesn't come out and make noise. Uh, and so I took it to the repair shop. There's a repair shop close to where I live, um, just down in St. Paul. And I thought that they were going to tell me, and when I came back, they said, it was, they, said they, had a, they had a solution for me. And when I came back, I thought they were going to present me with a list of all of the components and pieces that needed to be fixed. But instead, they pulled out the small motor in the back of it and said, this is what needs to be fixed. This motor runs all of the components and all of the pieces on this clock. This is the thing that needs to be fixed. And I also thought they were going to say, that's going to be about $50. But what they said instead was, that's going to be about $500. And then what they thought I was going to say was, yes, go ahead and fix that. But instead, I said, I'll deal with a broken cuckoo clock. That's what this passage is like to me. This passage has a bunch of parts. 
and a bunch of components to it. We could get into every small detail and intricate section of this, and they're important, and it makes this passage function, but but I'm, I don't have the time, and I'm not going to dive deep into all of those moving components today. So instead, I'm going to focus on what I think is the motor. The motor that's the heart of this passage. And I think really it's the rest, it's also the motor and, and the heart of the rest of Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5, 6, and 7. This is what I think makes Jesus' Sermon on the Mount run and function and move all of the other components. So when we start chapter 5, we're able to see that Jesus has already done and said some really great things, some really neat things, right? He starts with, um, and things that that people have already, that like and they agree with. He starts with the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, those that mourn, the meek, Right, everyone can get behind that. Yeah, sure. Those, that's yes. We can be blessed, and when we do those things, and when we are those things, and then he moves into the salt and light passage, which is important and meaningful and vital to his audience. Right? It's it's um, he's t- he's speaking to his disciples, the Pharisees, the scribes, and common Jewish Israelite people here. But he's the salt and light message is important to them because it speaks into their divine calling to be a light to the rest of the world. Their calling that God gave them to, hey, I want you to be a light unto the world. But then we get to verse 17. Right? I, can't, I can't be 100% certain of this, because contrary to what my middle school son believes about me, I'm not old enough to have caught the Sermon on the Mount live. Right? I wasn't there, so I can't be 100% certain of this. But, in verse 17, when Jesus says, do not think, it seems like for the first time, for the first time, at least in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is going to say something where He thinks it's going to get flagged. Where He thinks there's going to be an objection. Where He thinks someone's going to say, whoa, hold up. Pause. What did you just say? And it feels like Jesus is getting out in front of that objection that He knows is coming. Right? And I, he was right, right? We, we, have the, we have the benefit of hindsight. He, no one, I don't, we don't know, at least we don't know, that no one objects immediately. Right? We don't have record of that. Matthew doesn't say that. But we see in all of the Gospel accounts that for the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry, anytime Jesus does some teaching, anytime He heals, really anytime He does anything, the Pharisees object. Anytime he has dinner with someone, the Pharisees object. There's objections to anything Jesus does. And I think in Matthew's Gospel, this is the first time where he knows what he's going to say is going to cause objection and tension. This is tension. This is where the tension starts. Because Jesus strikes a nerve. I love that about Jesus. He's wild. Well, I think he was calculated, but... He's wildly calculated in, I'm, I'm getting to the heart of something here. And it's going to strike a nerve. So you buckle up. So Jesus has touched on, a sub, he's touched on two subjects that are extremely important to his audience. And especially, especially important to the scribes and Pharisees. Right? Jesus is talking about the law. The Mosaic law now. And he's talking about their faith leaders. Their spiritual giants. 
right? The prophets. The law was something that God gave to Moses to instruct. Well, Moses was then to, to pass it along to instruct, to inform, to protect, to guide, right? The Israelite people. That was the law. It was God-given. It was, it was God-ordained for the Israelite people. It was their central authority by which they lived their lives. It was the, it was the law. Well, the law was how they maintained a relationship with God through the law. And Jesus is touching on it. Jesus is talking about it. And he's also talking about the prophets. As I said, they were these faithful giants, these spiritual giants of Israelites' history that God, again, had positioned throughout history to shepherd and teach the law, to guide, to inform, to, to, re, to rebuke, to correct the Israelite people. These, these, I, want you to, to know, I want you to understand that these two things, the law and the prophets, are the cornerstone of the Israelites' identity. This is who they are. And now Jesus is coming along. And He's not only mentioning these two sacred things, He's saying something about them that's never been said before. He's saying something, he's saying something that you as the listener, these people as the listener, believe that there's more coming and it might be controversial. The statement that He did not come to abolish the Law and the Prophets but instead came to fulfill them was something new. Was something, whoa. I imagine people were like, what did he just say? What's wrong with the law? Is it incomplete? Did the prophets say something wrong that you now have to correct? What do you mean you're here to fulfill them? What does that, that, that I don't even know if they knew how to register that, how to make sense of that. The Pharisees were probably like, dude, this dude is cray. What is he talking about? This is our job. How dare he say something about the law and say something that we don't even, what is he, like what? So what is Jesus doing here? What is he saying? What is he saying? What does he mean when he says, I'm not here to abolish, but instead to fulfill? I came to fulfill. I think what Jesus is doing is he's preparing people for a real-life tension. Right? He, he's giving them an invitation here to think about the law differently. He's introducing a real-life tension that again, in, he, will inter, he introduces it in verse 21, 22, and then five more times in 27, 28, 31, 32, 33, 34, 38, 39, 43, and 44. In those verses, he says it again. One Bible commentator that I read gives the tension a name. He gives it a, this, a super creative name. Are you ready for this? This is why Bible scholars and commentators get paid so much. They called it, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you, tension. Whoa. They just plagiarized Jesus. Um, but no matter what you call it, this tension, this juxtaposition of ideas that you have heard it said followed by, but I say to you, is the motor that runs the rest of Jesus' teaching. Right? Jesus is doing two things through this assertion. First, Jesus is confirming and upholding the legitimacy of the Mosaic Law. 
He's confirming and upholding that the Mosaic law is legitimate. It's real. It's good. And the prophets as well. It is, these are good things. You've heard this said, which is good. Which is what, you've, what you should have been hearing all along. This is good. He's confirming and upholding that. That this is what you all understand and you should understand it. The law and the prophets have served people well and they've done their job just as God designed them to. They've guided and led people towards something and they've guided and led people for a purpose. And the second thing Jesus is doing when He follows it up, when He says, but I say to you, the second thing He's doing there is He's announcing and He's asserting that the next thing He's going to say has authority. It also has authority. You've heard it said, that had authority in your lives. It's designed to have authority in your lives. But now I say to you, He's putting it on the same level. He's putting Himself on the same level as the law and the prophets. Jesus isn't discrediting the law or the prophets. He's not throwing them out. He's not doing anything like that. He's he's revealing that the law and the prophets have been made complete in, through, and because of Him. He's placing Himself in the same position as the law. And again, remember, the law was the central authority in their lives. Up until this point, the law, what, what do we do in this situation in life? Well, let's look to the law. What are we, how are we supposed to handle this? Let's look to the law. That was the central authority in their lives. And now Jesus is saying, I'm there too. I'm on that same level. He's expanding. I, I, I don't quite know how to articulate this. That's why I'm, now I'm going off script. But if you, uh, if you look through like a cardboard tube or any sort of tube, it doesn't have, whatever the material is, you're looking at, and, and you're looking at this light through that tube, you don't see everything else in this room. You see that light. But I think what Jesus is doing here is that He's saying, take away that tube and now look at, that light is still there. You can all see that light still, but now we can see everything else that the light illuminates. Right? Jesus is pulling back the tube. He's expanding their law-centered view to a broader, more expansive, Jesus-centered view. Where the values and the characteristics and the identity of Jesus are now officially authoritative matters of the law. Things like, so, so Jesus is saying, look to me now in addition to the law and maybe to make the law more fulfilled, more, more, more fulfilled, more complete, rounded out. Things like mercy and justice and love and compassion and grace, they are just as weighty and carry the same authoritative significance as the other matters of the law and the prophets. Uh, a biblical scholar too that I, that I read on, on Matthew's Gospel used these words. And I really like these words. Um, he, this is what Jesus did. He re, he, there was a reaffirmation of the law and then a radicalization of the law. So the, you have heard it said is the reaffirmation and then the radicalization is, but I say to you. 
In verse 21, Jesus reaffirms the law and when he states when he's talking about murder. Right? You have heard it said that you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's the law. Jesus is reaffirming the law. This is what you've known. And then he radicalizes it in verse 22. But I tell you that anyone who is angry, or, or the word there is like a hate-filled anger. Anyone who's hateful with their brother or sister is subject to judgment. Again, the law, anyone who says to their brother or sister, Raka, which, which is a, a kind of a, akin to like calling someone a dummy or an airhead or you idiot, like, but out of maybe more of a jest and maybe more not, not hate-driven, Right? They're, sub, they're answerable to court. That's, that's, you can't, like, can't be going around calling everybody idiot. Like The court can handle that. That's the law. But I say to you, if anyone who says, you fool, an anger hu- that's fueled by hate, they will be in danger of fire of hell. So Jesus here has upheld the law. Right? There's lawful consequences for calling someone an idiot the court of the Sanhedrin. You're going to go before the court and have to work that out. But then Jesus radicalizes the law and assigns this hefty spiritual or heart consequence to those who are fueled by hate and anger. That Jesus radicalizes the law and makes it more about this inward hatred and that that is displeasing. That that is not what Jesus requires. That's not what, the, what, what God wants. Right? They're guilty of disregarding the Jesus-centered fulfillment of the law. They're guilty of hate instead of love. They're guilty of holding a grudge instead of forgiveness and reconciliation. They're guilty of payback and revenge instead of extending mercy. The same principle is true in verses 27 through 30 when Jesus teaches on adultery. Jesus continues the same pattern of reaffirming and radicalizing the rest of the chapter, chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount. And it really, it, that, that type of thought, that tension, that you've heard this said before, but now I say to you, fuels and runs the rest of Jesus' teaching here. No, Jesus isn't, Jesus isn't revealing or uncovering something revolutionary here. Like, like He isn't revealing a new idea. It is, it is revolutionary in a sense, but He's not revealing something new about God. He's not saying anything about, new about God's character or um, that, that God, in a sense, has changed God's mind and, and is moving in a new direction Right? Come up with, God came up with a new plan and now Jesus is going to institute it. That's not necessarily what Jesus is doing because God has always wanted our love, our hearts, and our minds more than any other sacrifice that the law wants, that the law required. God has been communicating that desire and truth to humanity long before Jesus. There's, there's this sense, you'll see it on the screen here, there's this sense that Jesus is asking them, though, to make a shift, to make a heart and a mind shift from the law, which, is, which tends to be on the more transactional side, 
What do I do? What does the law say I do uh, when I messed up or when I stole something or when, I, when someone stole something from me? How does the law reconcile that? And that's a transaction. We just do what the law says and we're good. But Jesus is asking them now, but I say to you to make a transformational shift, to make a heart shift, a mind shift. And that's not new. As, as we'll see on the screen, I think, here in the prophets have said this for a long time because God directed them to. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, these are, these are God's words through Hosea. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than the burnt offerings that you might give me. 1 Samuel 15.22 says, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. This is what God has wanted all along. And and then again, last one, there's more, but for today, this is the last one. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 through 17, but I'm just going to read 11 and 17. The multitude of your sacrifices... What are they to me? What are they to me? Says the Lord, I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. Do learn to do what is right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Jesus is inviting them to to reimagine, to to come back to, in a sense, of what, what God has wanted all along. Right? So you've heard it said that, and the law has kind of taken over your life, and it's good, it's okay, it's been the central, you've needed this. But this is what I say to you, and this is what God has been saying to you all along. So Jesus isn't saying anything inconsistent, what God, has, what God has always wanted. But Jesus is saying this. He's saying that the law and the prophets have worked together in purpose and in function to lead people to me. And now I'm here. They've led people to Him who is God incarnate. They've led people to Him who embodies God's heart. They've led people to Him who embodies all of God's character. They've led people to Him who is here to accomplish God's plans, who is here to fulfill God's plans. And when they, and and, and now really, now us too, know and believe that Jesus is the transcendent fulfillment of God's plan to redeem and restore creation, that's when further and greater and more transformational things can and will happen. When people start to believe that, when they start to understand that there's no, there, doesn't, there isn't a transaction that happens between God and us, it's now a transformation that Jesus is bringing that transformation. When people authentically live out verse 19, 
when it says when, when people practice and teach these commands, they will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The people who live out this transformation will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's when the kingdom's reach here on earth will be further and greater. And that will happen through those of us who choose to live a Jesus-centered fulfillment of the law. When we're looking for transformation rather than transaction. When our lives are led by Jesus' love, Jesus' forgiveness, Jesus' compassion, and Jesus' grace. When we become seekers of mercy, when we become seekers of justice and humility, that's when the kingdom will grow. And when people know what it is to be loved by the God of the universe, when we are doing those things, when we are seeking transformation and living that out, people will know what it is to be loved by the God of the universe because we will be able to love them like He does. And they will be able to experience the joy and the hope of living a life that's centered on Jesus and not something that is transactional. Amen? Let me pray. God, we are in awe of You. And we come, we approach Your throne with humility, with the utmost of humility, because You are the God of this universe. But we also claim the promise that we can come to Your throne with confidence in that humility, that we can come knowing that You will hear us, that You will love us, that You will be there with us uh, and hear us out. So Lord, we ask that You hear us out. We ask that that we would take uh, our lives and we would center them on Your Son and that You would give us the strength to do that that Your Holy Spirit would fill us up to the point where we have Your power, Your ability, Your love, Your hope coursing through us, that our heart and our mind are centered on You and the transformation that You have given to us, that You are constantly transforming us to be more like You, to be more like Jesus. Lord, we, we hope and we pray and we, we trust that you do that for us. We are grateful that you've given us that opportunity that you have come and you have lived and you have died and you have rose again so that we can know you. So Lord, be God with a capital G. Tug at our hearts, tug at our ears, whisper, yell, shout, whatever, so that we know who you are and know that you love us more than anything. In your name we pray. Amen.